Welcome to the RE Human Layer Security Podcast, the show that flips the script on cybersecurity. I'm Tim Sadler, the CEO and co-founder of Tessian, and in each episode, I'll be interviewing IT and business leaders about why we need to protect people, not just machines and data, to stop breaches and empower businesses to achieve their missions. Cool. Hi, everyone. This week, I'm joined by Dave Cole, the CEO and co-founder of OpenRaven, a company whose mission is to reinvent data security for a modern era and put an end to data exposure. Prior to starting OpenRaven, Dave was the chief product officer at Tenable and also the chief product officer at CrowdStrike. He also held multiple senior positions at Symantec before that and has spent most of his career working in security in one way or another. Dave, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making time. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. So Dave, it's rare that we have a guest on the podcast that just has the depth of security background that you do. You spent most of your career in security. Um, Tell us a little bit about your, your journey. Yeah, I ended up in security quite accidentally, um, fell in love with Los Angeles when I was still a student at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And the one job that would get me out to LA was this job with Deloitte and Touche during security. And I was doing a little bit of programming at the time. I was a, I was a consultant at the business school at U of M. And my boss told me, he's like, what are you doing? Like, you should be out doing, you know, go out and get a job in web development, the security stuff you know, that's, that's going nowhere. And I, I kind of agreed with him at the time. And lo and behold, you know, my time at Deloitte and Touche in LA, LA was everything I thought it would be. Um, and has still remained there as my home, you know, 26 years, gosh, a a long time later, (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Um, but Deloitte introduced me to the world of security you know, everything from helping international traveler, travelers at Hughes Space Communications to penetration tests and so forth. And from there, um, I got intrigued and pulled over to a young company called Internet Security Systems. Um, and there we were working with the, really the first vulnerability, commercial vulnerability scanning product, Internet Scanner, and the first intrusion detection system, Real Secure, as well as the beginnings of what would become a sim in the future in this thing called Safe Suite Decisions, which never quite fulfilled its promise, but was visionary and incredibly intriguing. So after working with those products, realized, gosh, there's a whole market of not just vulnerability scanning, but vulnerability management that's going to appear. And one of my consultants had already gone over to Foundstone, uh, where CEO is George Kurtz and uh, Stuart McClure was right there alongside him as CTO future founders of CrowdStrike and Silence, respectively. So we had a, a go of it at, at introducing vulnerability management to the world at Foundstone alongside an amazing services team and uh, just an amazing team in general. And we sold that to McAfee after, I'd say, like a pretty choppy experience where we all learned a ton. And from there, um, I went over to Symantec. I got bit by the product bug and wanted to do that forever and ever. And I spent a bunch of time at Symantec, mostly in consumer during the Norton product line. And after that, after a long eight and a half year stint, much longer than what I expected, doing many different jobs there, um, it was time for me to go. And George tapped me on the shoulder and I went into uh, CrowdStrike, first as VP of PM and then as their first chief product officer to get them through their Series C. Um, After that, I went on to be asked to go into Tenable 
um, and help guide their product line through the IPO. I was asked by the investors to come in and it was at a time uh, when they were in transition of CEOs. So it was, uh, it was a really interesting time to be at the company as a transition into what it was going to become today and um, honored and proud to have uh, put my fingerprints on it. After that, um, I figured I had one last thing that I'd never done in security, which was start my own product line, start my own business. So uh, along with my co-founder, Mark Curfee, we started Open Raven in the uh, heady before times of 2019, right before the pandemic. And here we are today. That's an awesome story. And what a time as well to start a company. Dave, in that time and in your career, how has the security industry changed? Oh, profoundly. I mean, the, uh, the early days, it was really a hobbyist kind of market. Everybody expected to get their paws on the technology. And, you know, one of the first popular firewalls was TIS Gauntlet. And, you know, it was, it was really just a toolkit, you know, in many ways. And all of the early tools were rough and ready. And it was very much a tinker's market. And there really weren't, you know, really any dedicated security professionals. Everybody was doing it in their in their spare time while they're doing other things and so on. To see it go from those, you know, that point of, of just complete immaturity to where it is today is this massive, you know, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar market where we have, you know, levels of a, a complete level of sophistication with different security responsibilities in a complex regulatory environment. And we have conversations now around you know, security metrics that drive cyber insurance premiums and everything else. It's just a staggering amount of growth and maturity that's happened, you know, since the uh, since the early to mid 90s. And I guess that growth has also come because the threat has grown, right? The risk to businesses. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, one of the seminal novels of security that everybody even read in the early days is Clifford Stoll's The Cuckoo Egg. And it's, it's just a, um, it's a great story about how we used to look at the threat environment and how there used to be what we would call APTs, you know, back in the day, advanced persistence threat, people-based hacking. And it's a great story, but what, you know, in, in a lot of instances like this, you have to look at it and say, okay, if that was the seminal story of the early day and kind of the lore that a lot of us knew and leaned on, um, what would be, you know, what was left out of it? Like what happened along the way? <laughs> and the answer is, Oh my God, just about everything, right? Um, DDoS, spam. And you had this era where adware and spyware just exploded in the early 2000s, lasted for about five years, where it was a huge problem. You had the dawn of phishing around the same time. And, you know, you move into the attacks of today and just the sophistication of nation state adversaries and ransomware and all those things. And, you know, the backbone behind all of this is commercialization of you know of cybercrime you know basically in the early days it was pranks and so forth and you know vindictive attacks over ddos and that sort of thing but having said that just a really strong commercial backbone um behind all of this a real criminal um you know real criminal threat that's making genuine money off of this and the involvement of nation states in this and, and nation states seeing this as really a new frontier for warfare. Um, all of those are things that, you know, were, were kind of hard to conceive back in those days when we read the, you know, about Clifford Stoll's journey with the cuckoo egg and his investigation into the strange behavior on his Unix machines. 
you know, to today where uh, we hear more about the fancy cars that the ransomware, <laughs> the ransomware gangs are buying. Yeah, for sure. It's almost shifted from um, doing things because they could or like pushing the limits of, of technology or hacking for the sake of, of I don't know, the, the, the point of proving that you could hack something to actually now it's easier to make money than it's ever been before. Um, now, you have a really interesting background because you've not only worked in the security industry, but a lot of guests we have on the podcast are security practitioners. They're building defenses. You have spent most of your career building security products that those teams use. Um, so, Dave, I'm going to ask you a super easy question that I'm sure you can answer in a single sentence. But uh, what makes a great security product? Oh, wow. <laughs> it seems like an easy question, but I, I think it's a challenging one. So, uh, first off, um, you know you've got to get the pricing right, and it, it feels like an odd place to start. But so many security products price themselves themselves right out of the market, or they end up in a situation where you know someone tests it and they just it's just too expensive for their budget or the pricing is too opaque. So the one thing that a lot of people get wrong about security products is the pricing itself and just their level of transparency and how hard it is to predict the cost and so forth. And if you think about pricing, it's the one part of the customer experience that touches the most aspects of the company from finance to procurement to the CISO to the you know to the people who are using the product if you if you construct your pricing wrong and the people who are using the product have to think about what it's costing them that's a clear failure so funnily enough i'm going to start in kind of an obtuse way by saying getting the pricing and licensing right great licensing and pricing which means it's predictable it's transparent is super duper important um, secondly is it has to be easily operationalized what that means is is it you it's got to work inside the customer's existing workflow as opposed to requiring them to do new things um that's incredibly important so integrations apis and so on is is super important um third the setup costs have to be minimal you know when we having done consumer when you get in the mindset to where uh, a non-technically sophisticated person has to be productive you know you have to get them to convert without any help in, in 30, 60 days, which you know is what we had with the Norton Internet Security products. And when you transfer that kind of same belief set, that mindset over to enterprise, and I think it largely has transitioned where people expect results quickly, the product has to be able to pay off the user's initial investment of time with near-term results. And then as the user invests more time in it, the product has to get, provide deeper and deeper results. Um, and, you know, so it's a combination of kind of product design and usability and just knowing that if you're forcing someone to do the work of setup, you have to have a payout afterwards. And it has to be something that provides genuine value to the person using the product. Um, I'll, I'll pause there. There's so much more we could go into here, but those were some of the things that I think might be a little different than what folks might have expected. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I wouldn't have expected you to start there. But, you know, in building security product here at Tessian as well, like we, I, I think we would agree totally with that. Um, and security is one of those things that is so hard to quantify in terms of ROI because so many products are being sold kind of as a 
you know, an insurance policy. It's against a risk that might happen. What's your advice for security teams that are thinking, hey, how do we evaluate the cost of what we should pay for a security product? Like what, what seems fair? No, oh, great question. Great question. I want to go back to one thing that I missed that's absolutely essential to building a security product. And I, I've been accused, I, I, I would accuse myself of underinvesting in this more than a few times, is telemetry and tuning for accuracy and knowing, you know, what's knowing what what alerts, what events are actually um, true positive versus false positive and so forth. You just can't, um, you can't overemphasize the importance of having really good telemetry in your product and doing progressive tuning on it and investing in that. Yes, you're going to have to forego some feature development. Yes, you're going to have to go slower. But if you're streaming a ceaseless amount of meaningless alerts at people, they're going to learn to tune you out. And that's just, it's so important. And, you know, when it comes back to, to the question you just asked, about how do you determine what the value is? I think what you're going to see is um, you're going to see a lot more people doing 12-month subscriptions as opposed to the classic kind of three-year purchases and what we saw before. So I think there's a clear trend towards less multi-year deals, more 12-month deals. Um, and the reason for that is is in the current approach with, um, with DevOps and with SaaS-based services, the deployments are much easier and with a push towards usability um, and, you know, and clear APIs and clean integrations and, you know, kind of less customization, I think, than what we saw before. Um, in those instances, it's simply going to be easier to swap out products. So I think what I'd be looking for if I was a security practitioner is I'd be looking for pricing that allows me to take an initial bite of the product, see how product works, see how the vendor interacts with me. I'd be looking for something where, you know, I'd lock in really only for a short period of time, you know, um, probably no less than 12 months, you know, give it some time. Um, um, but having said that, do I really want to lock in for longer than that? And I'd want to, I want to look for something that fits inside, you know, things are changing so fast. It's easy to say, well, you know, make sure it fits the budget. I think it's nigh impossible for both practitioners and vendors to say, you know, what, what the budget is for something, you know, in many of these categories now, they're just changing so fast. But having said that, the way that, you know, typically people look at purchases is what's it like? What's the basket of goods, right? We did this at Norton um, when we were doing consumer research is you look at it and say, okay, forget about the price of Norton antivirus for a moment or Norton Internet security. When people consider prices, they consider it relative to other things like it. So if I'm a vendor and a practitioner, the smartest thing you can do is say, what's like this product? And if I like the pricing and licensing for that, or I think it's reasonable, you really kind of have to anchor off of that thing because people don't look at a product many times as this fresh, truly unique thing. They look at it relative to something they already know. You know, They do that very human mm. thing of, of matching it as a cognitive shortcut. So I think both for practitioners and vendors, we have to look at what's the thing that's li it's likely to be compared to and if that's reasonable, well, then make sure that this kind of fits that mental model. I mean, it's it's a crude heuristic, but it's a functional one. Yeah, I think it's super important. Those like pre-existing frames of reference, because 
you know, as founders and entrepreneurs, like we're pushed so hard to innovate and create something new and, you know, your vision has to be unique and it's easy to forget that actually you can, you know, not everything needs to be a complete reinvention, right? You can work within, you can work within an existing space and push things forward. And if you do that as well, there's a huge benefit to just how you can more clearly communicate the benefits of your solution versus, you know, what came before. I want to use this opportunity to kind of talk about the company that you founded in 2019 and are now building, Open Raven, um, and your mission to reinvent data security for the modern era. And I wanted to start there with with your mission. What do you mean by that, and why is a reinvention needed? Yeah. So if you think about if you think about legacy data security products, they reflected where we were at the time. So let's think about um, data loss prevention products for a moment, which is what most people remember. Even though we have Veronis, which did static file scanning and, and um, identity and access related audits, um, the one that most people know is DLP. And if you look at the problem that DLP was trying to solve is we had so much user data being created. And what was it at the time? It was largely office files. We were talking spreadsheets and documents and everything else, occasionally CAD files and so forth. And we were very concerned about the insider threat at the time. But that's where the data was. And if you think about what were our OG kind of data warehouses, well, they were physical devices that we owned that were jealously guarded by database administrators that were you know, pretty far removed from the internet, from internet access. In that instance, we focused on what mattered the most, which was protecting those very mobile office documents that often had sensitive data in it. And the DLP category evolved from an endpoint solution and mail solution um, and, and kind of beyond that. And it's still important to this day. Like it is still a category that while it may not be beloved, there's still plenty of CASBs that have important um, SaaS-oriented DLP offerings. Tessian, I know, does a version of DLP as well for email, which is still important. Um, you know, you see it, you see endpoint DLP, um, new ones, you know, being created and bought still. So there's a bunch of different approaches to it. But if you look at what, you know, in between all that time, the data economies happened. And what, where's the data going now? Where are the massive troves of data today? Well, undoubtedly, they're, they're in the cloud. They're in the public cloud. Why is it there? Because that's where the best tooling is. That's where the best data science tools can do the most. That's where storage is the most economical. That's where storage is the most flexible. There's, there's a ton of reasons why data is flooding into the cloud. So we looked at this and said, if that's the future, if that's where data is going in the future, will the risk go there too? And we believe that, you know, without a doubt, it absolutely will. The attackers will target the cloud because that's where the money's at. It's like the old quip, you know, for the bank robber. And uh, I think it's apocryphal. <laughs> but having said that, uh, there's a famous old bank robber who, you know, who was asked, well, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why will people attack, you know, data, you know, data in the cloud? Because there's one thing in common with every data leak and every data breach. It's the data itself. That's where the most valuable data and the largest amounts of data is going to be. So, you know, there's the attacker side of it, but then there's just sheer entropy too. There's just data sprawl and resulting chaos. 
Now, compared to the old school scenario where you had data that was relatively static and well-controlled, generated by an app by applications, to the scenario we have today, where you have a lot of things, devices and people, user-generated data, all streaming back into the platform. You have applications changing, you know, frequently, you know, if not by the day, you know, by the hour, by the minute at times, given the dawn of, of CICD and DevOps. So you just have all of this change. And who needs to get at that data now? You know, in the data economy, we have, yes, we have data scientists and statisticians and a whole bunch of other folks to go with it. But you have salespeople who need to get at the data. You have marketing people, you have product people all handling data in the cloud. And as a result of this massive amount of data and changing all the time, a lot of the the data leaks and data exposure that you see are simple accidents of people moving too fast and, and just making mistake. I'll copy this data over here and I'll delete it afterwards. It never gets deleted. And you know, and is this data today? Is it, you know, is it sitting, you know, well protected behind multiple layers of firewalls and you know, with someone watching it like a hawk? Most often it isn't. As a matter of fact, with so much of this built being built in services like you know Amazon Web Services um, S3 service, it's incredibly complex. So it's simply far too easy for people to make mistakes, you know. And it's also where the attackers, where the adversaries are going to focus as well. The combination of that, you know, if you apply DLP to that scenario, it's horribly misdesigned for the problem. So we designed Open Raven in order to take on the modern problem of data security, which is really wrapping our arms around the biggest, you know, the biggest upcoming risk, which is the giant troves of data that are sitting there in the cloud. Wow, that was a heck of a monologue, Tim. I'll pause. It was uh, very impressive. And I was going to add, I, I think Gartner reported that by 2022, so this is this is next year, 75% of all databases will be run on a cloud platform. So it's exactly what you said. And, and this, makes, this makes a lot of sense. And my question was going to be, how does OpenRaven and how, how do we go about addressing these issues? Is it purely about, you know, the human factor in all of this? It's helping you know, uh, helping people understand when they are doing something that puts data at risk in the cloud, or are there other, you know, are there other measures that that Open Raven takes? Yeah, it's it's much more about automation. Um, given the, the the size, the quantity, and you know, the, I think that the V's here, are volume, velocity, variety of data that's there, literally the only way to wrap your arms around it. Um, has a lot less to do about humans and a lot more to do about just massive amounts of automation. So the the way that we tackle the problem is first we automate discovery and, and locating the data. So in an environment, like I described before, a data mature organization, which could be a big company, um, it could be you know a gaming company, an auto manufacturer, a financial organization that's just been in the cloud for a very long time, and has grown a bunch of data there, or it could be a cloud native organization that's gone through a growth cycle, like you know any of a number of fintech and health tech companies that are out there today, or a myriad of others. But they're kind of they're kind of the usual suspect and, and oftentimes the target customer for us. They have you know they have these troves of data that are out there that are both regulated, they're sensitive, they have concerns around developer secrets, they have concerns around customer data, be it PCI-related data, payment cards, or patient health information, PHI, if you're a health organization. And 
what you know what we do first is we go out and we discover the data that's and we locate where the data is secondly we inventory and classify the data and that requires a bit of configuration and knowing what type of data you want to look for we have some defaults but oftentimes people need they want to look for very specific things um, they want to look for whether it's um, a special identifier for that organization let's say it's a wearable company and they want to look for um, their own version of PII, which might be a wearable ID number, you know, for that device. So after that, once you know where the data is located, you know what type of data you want to look for, we go out and we inventory and classify the data using serverless functions, um, which is one of the things that um, really allows us to hit the right performance and, 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 and affordability um, ratio. Uh, in the past, you know, if we had to do all this over dedicated compute, I think it would be um, cost ineffective. You know, the, basically the value of what we're providing might be more than what it's worth to spend on it. But given where things like AWS Lambda are today, we can hit a price performance ratio that we simply couldn't before. So, you know, moving on from there, and this is where you know the other automation comes in, is we can take those results and apply a set of rules to those that say, okay, if you see this type of data and it's protected in this fashion by the infrastructure, if it's configured in this way, the controls around it, or if it's in this location and so on, if it violates these rules that I set up for my business, I wanna know about it. Um, I want you to write a, uh, a tag onto this asset. I want you to um, send an alert over here into JIRA. I want you to send this over to Slack and so on. So really it's a combination of automation delivered by us doing the uh, the unglorious work of locating all the data that's out there, inventorying and classifying it without human intervention, and then taking automated actions at the end that are triggered by policy-based rules. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot less about um, <laughs> human interaction, um, which simply wouldn't work at the scale, and it's a heck of a lot more about um, large-scale automation that's suitable for a data lake and a data warehouse. Yeah, I love that point. And, you know, it's almost like removing the risk of the human in the loop. And, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with at Tessian is is uh, <laughs> the things that you cannot automate or you can't take, you know, you can't take people out of the equation, reading email, sending email, etc. Um, but I agree with that point of you have to have a scalable technology solution to this rather than just trying to rely on people uh, rely on that kind of education for people to do the right thing with data and how it's being used and moved in the cloud. It would be remiss of me to not talk about the topic that continues to dominate the headlines right now around data, which is ransomware. Why are we in this current situation with this kind of ransomware? I think many people call it an epidemic now. Um, why is it that in 2021, ransomware is such a big issue for organizations across the US and the whole world? Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of flippant answer is because it makes a ton of money for the people using it. <laughs> so, you know, that's the, that's the really kind of crude answer. But, you know, if, if we think about the factors that kind of bled into where we are today, the more serious and, and longer answer is um, back when I was at Symantec Security Response with a whole crew of talented folks, um, it was just an amazing team. Um, we saw the beginnings of ransomware back, I want to say in 2007, but the problem is they were using digital currencies too. There was, they were using early digital currencies like e-gold. The problem was, is that there was, it was really easy to follow the money trail. 
So the people who are who are you know committing ransomware um, basically would get tracked down and busted. And they were also not going after organizations at the time, but individuals. So you know the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. You know to use an analogy, and ransomware just kind of bumped along in relative obscurity until you know what do you know blockchain comes along and you know bitcoin in particular and digital currencies in general whether it's bitcoin monero which is often used and so on and now it's much harder to follow the money you know it's much easier to perpetrate at scale um phishing has reached a level of maturity the criminal gangs along the way reached a level of maturity to where you didn't have to undertake an entire attack by itself so, you know, there's all these things that happened over the course of, you know, the, the, you know, from 2007, when we saw the first signs of it, all the way up into, you know, kind of the late, um, the late days of the last decade, where ransomware started to become this huge issue. Um, you know, those are all kind of technical factors that bled into it. But also, you see, you have geopolitical factors, too. And I won't get into all the economic factors that drive people and, you know, in Russia and kind of former Soviet Union in order to undertake these. I think some of those are, you know, outside of my expertise and also kind of well known. Um, but you also have things like North Korea, um, who is behind a fair amount of ransomware um, at a period of time when the U.S. delivered really heavy sanctions on North Korea as they were threatening with ICBMs. You had North Korea undertake ransomware campaigns in order to create revenue to fund their missile programs. So, you know, you've got all these factors mixed in and you have a really interesting dynamic that we never had before with cyber insurance. You know, cyber insurance has been around for a long time, but in recent years, it's become much more popular. You know, I'd say really over the past you know, five to 10 years, it's become relatively expected. And then you had this really weird affect of of, you know, hey, they're going to go after these companies, the ransomware, and you know, adversaries are going after these companies. And in some instances, they're, you know, their understanding of the organization's cyber insurance policy is informing what type of ransom they're asking for. Um, so, you know, there's just a, a whole bunch of factors that span geopolitical to insurance and business to, um, Adoption, digital transformation and adoption of critical infrastructure, which exposes things like hospitals in a way that it wasn't before. Um, so, you know, to ways in obscuring the money trail, which, you know, wasn't available 15 years or so ago as well with um, with blockchain. So, yeah, it's it's just a whole bunch of things, Tim. I had, an, I had no idea about the uh, cyber insurance policy consideration for attackers um and yeah that's it's pretty scary when somebody knows what kind of policy you have and how to get around that um or indeed maybe how to exploit the insurance because they know it will pay out um that's right what is your what is your advice in all of this what do companies do to protect themselves yeah so we as an industry in these situations have leaned pretty hard on prevention technology and I do think that's super important. You know, um, use a solution like Tessian in order to block phishing, or you know, use endpoints. You know, good endpoint protection in order to make sure your endpoints are defended and you have visibility into what's happening. Um, that type of prevention is incredibly important and kind of a first line of defense. Um, however, 
there's also cyber insurance has a role here. And I think it's important. You know, it's important to make sure that you've, you know, you've carefully considered the role of cyber insurance that you can recover. I think the piece of this that's probably the least sexy and the most often ignored that we've tried to help out with, and I know many others, um, many of the data protection uh, companies have as well, um, is it's really important to know if the data, you know, if this data ends up being locked up and ransom, could you recover it? And could you recover it from a safe location? That's incredibly important. So, you know, the, the, the kind of less sexy and easy work of know where your sensitive data is and know that you could recover it and know that you could recover it in a time frame that wouldn't incentivize you to pay the ransom because, you know, well, I could recover the data. But having said that, the operational pain of being down for two days is actually more than the ransom. You never want to be in that situation. So you need to know where your sensitive data is. You need to know that if it was ransom, you could recover it in a brief period of time, or at least in a period of time that's faster than you would be motivated to pay the ransom instead. Does all that make sense? It does. And so we're talking about where we are right now in 2021. Um, we're at that time of year where we start to think about the future and we ask people to you know, look ahead and think about what's coming next. What do you think the future holds for data security and what is top of mind for you as we're going into 2022? Yeah, I, I you know, it's it's self-serving to say some of this, so I'll just own that up front. But, you know, we believe strongly, as does Gartner, that as the data moves to the cloud, the data protection, the data solutions will move to the cloud. And you're going to see uh, a lot of integration between backup solutions and security in ways that you didn't before because of ransomware. So you're going to see, you know, companies like Druva, like Rubrik, um, like the you know AWS data protection team who we've done some work with, you're going to see them integrating with security solutions because you're going to see much, much more the topic of resiliency um, mesh alongside security. So that would be that would be kind of one thing that I think is sort of increasingly obvious, but you know that trend is absolutely going to continue and, and going to accelerate. There's been a, a quiet movement towards something called data ops, um, which is applying a DevOps-like mentality um, and a level of discipline and rigor to data handling. Um, there are many, including us, who believe that there's going to be, that eventually data ops is going to mature into data sec ops, just like DevOps matured into DevSecOps, um, where we look at this and say, there's so much data, data handling is incredibly important, we need to have some rules around this. We need to have automation in order to get out in front of it and prevent leaks, prevent breaches, and so forth. So um, that level of maturing, you know, secure data handling as a discipline is uh, is going to be is going to be a trend that um, I don't think it'll be massive, massively obvious next year, but I think you're going to see it become more and more readily apparent. Um, also, think we're going to see some interesting things with respect to open source data. Um, I was just at a conference where this was talked about, and I wish I could relay more of the details, but there's a fascinating dialogue um, led by Sam at Datastax about the role of open source data, the promise of open source data. And as in building a product like OpenRaven, one of the challenges that you have is there simply aren't huge repositories of data to test against so that you can get the level of accuracy 
you know, that we would love, that we want to have, and we think our customers expect and deserve, open source data uh, among many, solving many other problems would help out with that. And I think it's going to be one of those trends that we're going to, we're going to see peak its head out over, um, over next year and, and well beyond. Yeah, I love that point about open source data. And we've, we've even seen a little bit of this with some of the projects um, using homomorphic encryption on data sets. So you don't actually have to disclose the data, but you can still analyze it and understand the underlying trends. Um, so I, I think that's a very good, good point and uh, yeah, opens up a lot of new opportunities and I'm sure a whole bunch of new challenges as well. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. With every guest, we love to finish up with some quick fire questions to get to know the humans on the Human Layer Security Podcast a little bit better. Um, so I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite city in the world? Oh, you I know, think I know what you're going to uh, say. Yeah, it's LA. I, I live where I love. It's It's been my home since 96. And uh, I just think it's it's a big, crazy, sprawling city where you can be uh, you know, a, a resident for so many years, 25 plus years, and still there's so much that I don't know about it and new things that are changing all the time and fascinating things to explore. So at my heart, I have an adventure. I love a good story. I love a good adventure. And uh, LA is just a city that seemingly has you know, no end no end of stories that are that are being written at any moment in time. So, yeah, I, I live where I love. I love that. And imagine your diary is cleared for the day. How do you spend your day? Wow. Um, if my first thing I would do is if my son was out of school, we'd go play tennis. Um, if he was in school and I had a full day to myself, I would grab my favorite book, I would grab my scuba gear, and I'd get underwater. Uh, I love to scuba dive. I don't get to do it nearly enough. And uh, it, that's, um, that's kind of my happy, peaceful place. And in between dives, I would uh, I'd read a probably a, a fantasy or a sci-fi novel. I saved the big question to last, but who is your role model? Teddy Roosevelt. I'm a huge Teddy Roosevelt fan. Um, and, uh, my, my son knows the man in the arena speech already and the thought behind it. So just, he's such an eclectic, amazing human being. Um, and, and even, you know, I think flawed in similar ways to myself. Um, but Teddy Roosevelt is an absolute inspiration. I mean, the father in the national park system, um, just absolutely, you know, accomplished so many things behind the creation of the Navy and, and just a myriad of accomplishments, writing a book, you know, that, <laughs> on bird calls and birds, you know, um, when he was still, I think, uh, just out of elementary school, maybe in middle school, just an amazing human being on every level and, uh, and a great family man as well. So yeah, Teddy Roosevelt as, uh, is, would be my, uh, my role model and someone who uh, I take a lot of inspiration from. Dave, thank you so much. So great to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. Really appreciate it. And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more Human Layer Security Insights in our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, you can visit our blog at tessian.com forward slash blog, where you'll find lots of amazing content, advice, and tips. 
And if you enjoyed our show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.